Hello and welcome to Inequality Talks, a podcast from the volunteers at Mellenfaglia Samvega Aarhus. On Inequality Talks, we discuss concepts and interview experts on ideas relating to economic inequality, learning and sharing knowledge about what it is and how best to address it. Today's episode is a special collaboration with our local feminist group. I am Adam and with me today are... Gersi. Rebecca. Today, we're going to be talking about the gender pay gap and how economic inequality operates along gendered lines. First, if you guys could just say a few brief sentences about who you are, your background and where you come at this topic from. Um, I'm Kirsi. Uh, I come from Estonia, uh, but I have uh, lived here in Denmark uh, for the best part of my adult life, the last uh, eight or almost nine years now. And I have done my uh, bachelor's and master's degree here in classical guitar uh, from uh, the Royal Music Academy of Aarhus. And at the moment, I work as a freelance musician and also as a guitar teacher at Skanepo and also at Aarhus Music School uh, as a substitute. I am also a co-coordinator for the feminist group here at MS, which brings me here to this podcast today. I come from the topic, from the viewpoint, that there is still a lot of problems to be addressed and that it is still an issue since uh, very often it gets downplayed. But there is a lot to talk about. There is a lot to improve on. And I'm very happy to be here to get to discuss that. Thanks, Casey. Rebecca? Yeah, um, I'm Rebecca Baglini. I'm an assistant professor of computational linguistics at Aarhus University. Um, I've lived in Denmark for the last three years. I'm from the U.S., and that's where I got my education. I come at this from the perspective of, of I'm not an expert in uh, gender issues in, in particular or in, in income inequality, but as a linguist um, and as a computational linguist in particular, one of the things that, that I'm concerned about is this issue of sort of algorithmic injustice and seeing how a biased world produces um, data that when it's used for producing algorithms and uh, data-based um, models of the world can perpetuate the injustices and the biases that, that we'd really like to solve as a society. So it can sort of become a, um, a vicious cycle. So that's uh, one of the places where um, my interest in, in feminism stems from that's very close to my career choices. Also as a woman in academia, um, especially in a technical field, I am you know, very aware of the, the issues, the, the inequalities that persist. I'm a member of the MS um, feminist group alongside Kiersey, um, and I've been part of it for about a year now. Thank you, Rebecca. Uh, I'm Adam, as people who've heard other episodes might know. I have a PhD in uh, English literature, and I had a broad, broad focus on sort of politics and society. I've continued that interest, and now I am the uh, co-coordinator of the Economic Inequality Group. Obviously, I'm interested in society. I'm interested in inequality. This is one of the hugest areas of uh, inequality in our society. And you see it everywhere. One of the reasons I wanted to move to Denmark, actually, is because I, Denmark is, compared to the UK, egalitarian in a lot of ways. But I was quite surprised when I went to the Women's Museum, which I believe is now called the Gender Museum, and discovered that gender, gender, the gender pay gap in Denmark really isn't that much better than it is in the UK. Um, so it, clearly it persists everywhere, really. But today I'm going to leave it more up to you guys as the resident experts. So let's start with... You know, the, the, the very basic terms for, for anyone who's maybe not familiar with the topic or, you know, wants, wants a refresher. What is the gender pay gap in the most basic terms? What does that mean? Well, um, it consists of many parts. 
for the first, of course, the obvious pay discrimination, uh, a di- direct pay discrimination, which means that women get paid less per hour than men. But then there is also an indirect pay discrimination, which comes to be when uh, there are companies that pay less per hour to uh, part-time workers. And because women are make up th- around three-fourths of the part-time workers in the world, then uh, it affects women the most. And why women do that is because um, they still take care uh, most of the caregiving work uh, and and all the uh, domestic duties. And all of that adds up to the fact that they just simply don't have time for a full-time work. So they choose the part-time work if they have the possibility. And besides that, women also make up uh, most of the lower paid sector workers, uh, such as cleaning industry, food industry, customer service, nursing, and etc. Uh, and that's again, the numbers are up to three-fourths uh, of the workers there. And uh, lastly, there is also uh, within an industry or within a company, uh, women mostly make up the lower paid workers there, uh, since we don't see many women in management and uh, in the board member groups. So not not that many decision makers amongst women. Yeah, I think that was a, that was a really great response. Um, I guess I would just add the gender wage gap as a generic term just refers obviously to the, the gap in, in earnings between men and women, but there are at least um, four things to take into account that all of which may involve bias. So different industries and jobs worked. So the fact that um, nursing is a, is a lower paid uh, profession, it, it could actually be a result of it being disproportionately staffed by, by women. Um, and I was actually just reading a study about how um, the uh, occupation with the most, um, actually with the highest rate of violent attacks is, is nursing, not policing. Um, and you can imagine that you know one of the reasons why we, we pay police really good salaries is because we think of it as dangerous work and we need to, to compensate that, that work very highly. Nursing is also a critical public facing uh, occupation that involves a lot of risk for the people doing the work. It's, it's paid disproportionately much, much lower, probably because it's disproportionately staffed by women. You also have to get more education to be a nurse than to be a, usually a public uh, police officer. So these things can be sort of um, systemic. One of the things we might talk about later is computer programming, which was originally a women's occupation. It was paid about on par with secretarial work until it became um, a male-associated position. And now computer programmers make a a ton of money. I could be making double or three times my salary if I took my programming skills into the tech industry rather than in in academia. Um, And then, as Kiersey said, the types uh, of, of jobs women work tend to be in the lower paid sector, um, not in management or leadership, and then differences in hours worked potentially because of childcare or other household responsibilities. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that the computer programming one is one of my favorite but also horrifying examples of, of, of how it works. So there are divisions in the kind of work that people do and how that's paid, but we've got to be careful about the causal order because people often say, oh, well, women just choose to do less well-paid jobs. There's a bunch of stuff problematic with that, but also in the same jobs, women will get paid less. Is that is that correct? Um, let's talk about how that works, because in a country like Denmark, as far as I'm aware, there are legal protections against employment discrimination in a lot of Western countries. So, so how does that work? How can it be that, for instance, within the same job, people get paid different amounts? 
I read a really striking study put out by the, um, I guess the IDA, which is the Association of Engineers in Denmark, which mm. reports a very large gap between the average first salary of newly graduated um, engineers, male and female, BSc and MSc engineers, despite the same academic qualifications. So that could be either because uh, women are being offered systematically lower salaries just for reasons of bias, or it could be because there's an expectation that first-time employees will negotiate for higher salaries and for social or cultural uh, or political reasons, uh, women are less likely to do that, or they're not, uh, or they may face repercussions for doing that. So that's a good example because we know that these people have the exact same qualifications for for the jobs. Yeah, yeah. Actually, as you mentioned, there is very good protection in place here in Denmark, and it's actually all throughout Europe. So European Union has um, has passed a law where it is um, illegal to discriminate based on sex, based on gender. Uh, but uh, funnily enough, only about one quarter of uh, Europeans know about it. So they recently conducted a study, it was uh, 2019, where they then asked from uh, all countries in Europe, and they made a group of, I think it was about 10,000 people, and only about 26% of them knew that actually you are legally protected. Uh, but the problem with that is pay transparency. And that's what we don't have. So like, even if you know that your coworker, for example, your male coworker doing the same work is uh, getting paid more than you, then um, at court, it will be very hard to prove. And that's why there hasn't been that many court cases for this. And, uh, and that's why the pay gap persists because we do not have pay transparency. So that would be like one of the first things to kind of eliminate uh, all of this discrimination because most of it is still happening, of course, in the private sector. Hmm. Right. Yeah. So in the public sector, they have to publish what they're going to be paid. It's always going to be the same based on the job, but in the private se- sector, you can negotiate. Not quite, though. So, okay. so the thing is, I work in the public sector because I work for Aarhus University. There's remarkable transparency. All of our uh, salaries at each level of academic employment is collectively bargained. So you know exactly what the base salary is for every you know assistant professor in Denmark. We all get the same, but that's base salary. Um, and every year uh, you have the opportunity to have your union representatives uh, bargain on your behalf for either one-off payments or salary increases. And that's actually where you know big money and big discrepancies can can come through. So unfortunately, um, we don't have gender-based data on this, but um, all universities do have data on average salaries uh, per type of faculty position, per type of academic position, and and across the different schools. And we can see that there's a real disparity in what, say, a full professor makes. Some are making almost a third more than others, uh, but we don't know the the gender of, of the individuals making more. Um, my guess would be that we would we would find that male faculty are overall making um, more than women, um, men tend to more effectively, more often and more effectively negotiate for salary increases and, and promotion. And there may also be, you know, some some bias in in the process of bargaining. Uh, but we, we don't actually know and we can't get that data. Um, in some departments, there there are only one or two female faculty. So I'm not actually sure that they could release the gender-based data because it could actually um, it wouldn't actually be anonymous because in some cases there are so few women you would know exactly who the yeah. <laughs> who that one full professor is. Um, there are also a lot of departments where it's only men. So um, I'm the second woman in, in, in my department. 
so it sounds really great on paper. It sounds very equitable on on paper, but there is still a lot of room for um, for inequality to to sort of flourish, even in these public sector jobs. Yeah, that's true. And uh, there are, though, some countries that I can point out that have passed a law so that, for example, in France, if you have a company with more than 50 employees, then they have to release all the all the wages just mm. to uh, you know have the pay transparency. And then in Iceland, uh, it is more than 25 people. And in Poland, they have made a free app where then uh, people, the employees themselves can go and and write their salary so that you know, uh, another worker of the same caliber can see, okay, they make that much, then I can, for example, even just negotiate my salary to mm -hmm. this because I see that this is this is uh, possible or this is the norm. Uh, but still in most of the countries, it's not there. You make a great point that without transparency, it's really difficult for, for women and, and others to advocate effectively on their behalf in these, um, in the bargaining process. So, uh, I have the ability to nominate myself for a salary increase every year, but I don't have the data that I might need to know what my skills and competencies should warrant in terms of salary. And I don't really have the network of close uh, and more experienced academics to, to guide me or tell me. Um, we know that, that men tend to have uh, stronger uh, networks and, and more people sort of advocating for them, um, including in academia. So. Transparency would really maybe go a long way to helping women know what they should be asking for um, in terms of salary bonuses. I mean, it is really notable, like coming to Denmark, for instance, finding what what you're meant to ask for in an interview is very, very difficult. If you're new to that industry, if you're new to, to that kind of stuff, and if, because of all kinds of cultural norms, you pitch yourself lower, you're going to have a lower starting salary and any increase in your salary as well is going to not keep up. But I think we're getting into some other stuff that maybe we want to explore, because you mentioned that, that you're one of the few women in your department. There's there's whole departments in the university that don't have any female professors. This gets to the other aspect, which is the division of work, like why people are in certain kind of jobs. How does how does that persist? Why does that persist? You mentioned some aspects of it being prestige. Um, is is there data on that? Is there is there evidence you, you found around how those things operate? Because... I have heard a lot of people, and I think it's facetious, um, say, oh, well, women just choose poorer paid jobs, as if that's any kind of explanation. Even if that were true, you'd have to ask why, um, but it's not necessarily true. So so how how does that persist? Why is there that division? My short answer would be the, um, the meritocracy myth, mm. which is kind of one of the founding uh, beliefs of, of academia. So it's, it's very much... Uh, a merit-based system, or it, it thinks it is, but of course merit is assessed differently for um, for men and women, and um, women face uh, a lot of a lot of obstacles that are not really um, acknowledged by the system that we have for assessing um, quality and merit in academia. So there's a pretty notorious um, study uh, from a few years ago of economics professors, assistant professor level economics professors from the top 50 departments in the U.S. and um, maternity and paternity leave. Um, all of these professors, when they had a child, they would go on the, the family leave, which was instated as a way of kind of leveling the playing field. So in academia, you go on a leave and you usually get an extra year on your tenure clock uh, to make up for the time that you lose for childcare. And what was found was that the 
parental leave actually advantaged men. So they, they had a, about a 20% um, better chance of getting tenure after that leave because they used the time to you know, write papers and do some things for their careers, whereas women either wouldn't or couldn't uh, you know, use the time for anything except its intended purpose, which was childcare. So actually, the, the family leave disadvantaged women relative to men more than they were when it was only women who were taking a family leave. So this is the sort of uh, unintended consequences of, of policies that prioritize um, equality or treating people exactly the same instead of equity, which is actually recognizing that um, a merit-based system and a system that, that tries to treat men and women fairly and assess them totally equally, it's not going to actually be effective in closing the gap between men and women unless we take into account how these policies affect them differently. So I think that's a, a really persistent issue in academia. That's, that's pretty horrifying. Also because like you hear those horror stories about leave only being for women or shared leave only being used by women. And if I had a kid, I'd want to spend a good chunk of time with it. But the, that's not actually a beneficial policy for women is is pretty horrifying. So there's something there about some very deeply ingrained norms about surrounding childcare, for instance, that, that you mentioned in your introduction. Kiersey, would you like to, to speak a bit more to that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think there is a there is a big bias of uh, women being the main um, caregivers, taking care of the children, taking care of the household, all the domestic duties, um, and and that takes a, a huge amount of time from their everyday life. And it's estimated that it, especially women who have children, uh, that the time they spend on domestic duties while working is still somewhere between three and six hours whereas men spend only about half an hour up to two hours. Uh, so there is still a big disparity there. And um, another factor besides all the physical work that women do uh, through caregiving and, and um, domestic duties is also um, the mental load because women are also the main planners for the family. And even though I, I have, for example, from a personal perspective, I have many friends, many couples that also try to really find a balance between the work that they do at home. But very often it turns out still that um, that the woman is the planner. So the woman is kind of telling <laughs> her partner, do this and do this and do this. And you have to do it at this time or that time. You know, that's how we can uh, make the childcare work. Or, uh, you know, it's it's mostly still the planning work as well, which is uh, which is taking a lot of a lot of time and mostly from women. But talking most, most more about parental leave, um, it is a huge taboo still in many places. And I come from Estonia, which is, um, let's say, you know, not the, not the most gender equal, uh, especially since the gender wage gap is the biggest <laughs> in Europe, in, uh, in, okay. in Estonia. Yeah, it's, uh, it's upwards 18-19% and the European average is 143 so it's it's up there, and uh, and also just about five years ago, it was still uh, like looked weirdly upon when a when a father would take a leave to go and take care of the child. So it is not only that fathers maybe want to you know spend time with their children, but it's also society that kind of looks at them weirdly. Why would you do that? So so now it's getting better, and we also see it in the numbers in Europe that, for example, in Sweden, fathers already take up to thirty percent of the leave that they can to also be uh, with the child during the first year uh, but when we look at the numbers here in Denmark it is down in like 10-11% <laughs> so the system here in Denmark just to 
give a quick overview is that that the um, that the mother can take uh, a month before giving birth. Uh, she can already get her child leave, and then uh, then during the next fourteen weeks, the father can take two weeks of that, and then afterwards they have shared thirty two weeks that they can then mm-hmm. share between them and even like take it at the same time, but still, it's only down to 11% that the men take. Uh, so it's um, it's still a natural bias still across Europe to for, for men to take way less time. Apparently there was a, a really radical thing that Sweden had to do to get men to take more of the paternity leave, because um, paternity leave has been a right in Sweden since the 1970s. But until a few years ago, the numbers of, of Swedish fathers who were taking um, family leave was more in line with what we see in Denmark, about 11%. But then they mandated this uh, use it or lose it policy for paternal leave. So now uh, you have, I think it's up to four months now of um, a paid paternal leave. And if you don't use that, um, it can't be shared with the, the mother, essentially. So only the, the father um, can take that time. And so it's use it or lose it. And that has brought the number of men taking their, their promised paternal leave up, up to 30%. It does appear that a large part of Denmark's wage gap is related to women having children and mm. leaving the, the workforce, even though they're entitled to do so during the, the family leave time. Um, so according to statistics, Denmark, among single people in Denmark, women are actually the higher earners. They have larger net wealth um, than men, slightly higher, but higher. Mm. But then this this reverses as soon as women enter into couples and usually uh, women in heterosexual couples um, in most cases there will be children Um, so in only 29 percent of danish couples is the woman the higher earner and um, a danish uh, researcher at at princeton um, discovered that the sharp decline in danish women's earnings follows the birth of their first child but there's no comparable sort of salary drop-off for men and it looks like it's a combination of things so um, women coming back to work, they're offered less hours on the job. Um, they are overlooked for promotion at a higher rate than, than male colleagues who have, have gone on family leave. And the cumulative effect of this is that basically there's a gap that starts with the birth of the first child that just never closes between men and women in, in, in Danish heterosexual couples. So the cumulative effect is that women make 20% less than their male counterparts on average over the course of their career. And this is in Denmark, a country that really has taken great steps to uh, try to achieve more gender equality in the workplace. Wow. Yeah, it's quite crazy. I mean, uh, I also read this uh, study made in Germany from uh, OECD, and um, they estimated um, that um, women who have children and women who don't have children by the age of 45, uh, the difference in money-wise they can make is about 235,000 euros. <laughs> like it is, it is a ridiculous amount, uh, and just because of the choice of having children so it's it's really affecting and they also had the numbers that the average woman therefore uh, who has kids uh, earns between like actually even like 31 to 75 percent less than than men but of course that's of course taking every country in the world kind of into consideration where they can collect data yeah. uh, which is which is still quite scary to look at those numbers but also another aspect of parental leave is how much money you can actually get during that so for example there are uh, only 12 countries that give your full salary 
and that's only only up to f- three to six months. And uh, I think they didn't actually include my country in the study, but in Estonia you can get up to one and a half years. So I think that is actually the best system I have found. Only, you know, not to take into consideration that our salary in general is pretty low. <laughs> but uh, for example, in Ireland, they offer up to 26 weeks, but only with 34% of your salary. So that is quite crazy to think that from one side, society tells you, yes, have families, have children. Uh, this is the way our country goes forward. But from the other side, you kind of get penalized for it. And um, and that's why also I think another fact why men don't take that many paternity leaves besides social bias and other factors is that they normally earn more. So okay. therefore, it makes sense for them to, to keep working. It's for the good of the family as well, so that they actually have a higher income during that period. So it's self-reinforcing in that way that like men earn more, so it makes more sense for them not to take that shared maternity leave exactly. or shared parental leave. And so it, it's perpetuated. I mean, that's one of the big arguments I've heard for that, use it or lose it, which may have flaws that you mentioned, but that is um, that has a huge use. You've mentioned a lot of societal things there. There are a huge number of biases and pressures saying to women even in this period yes you've got to have a family yes you've yes you you got to do this also have a career but you've got you know you've got to take care of the children got to do that kind of stuff and and the opposite i've heard from a number of um uh, people that in denmark they really want men to teach young kids there's a real shortage of of men teaching young kids but also there's this huge bias that when people see men with young kids they assume that there's something dodgy going on that it's really weird that a man would be with kids. Whereas if they see a woman with kids, they're like, well, it could be a mother or a caretaker or anything. So there's pressure on women and pressure on men to not do those things that would be beneficial to women. I just wanted to, to add, I feel like I would be remiss uh, as an American to not mention that we're talking about um, family leave as something that is is important, but can also perpetuate uh, inequality in some ways and that can in some ways have unintended negative consequences for women in the workforce. I come from a country that doesn't have a mandated leave for either mothers or fathers at Mm. the federal level. So some women are fortunate enough to work for companies that have a paid leave policy, but no woman in America is actually protected at the federal level and entitled to paid leave. So some women uh, have to quit their jobs uh, to have a child. Um, They have to take their um, vacation days. There's actually this really pernicious, quote, heartwarming uh, trend in the U.S. uh, to give as a baby gift to your colleague um, your vacation days for her maternity leave. So um, this is what passes for heartwarming (laughs) in my home country. Um, Yeah, so instead of getting her a gift certificate, um, get together uh, with all the coworkers and pool your vacation days so that she can take maybe a month off before coming back to work. We also don't have subsidized childcare. Yeah, I mean, and this is an important note. We're in Denmark, and there's certainly things they could do better. But it also shows that you can do things, uh, so we can definitely improve, but there are definitely worse yeah. examples. But why I think it's interesting to actually contrast places like the U.S. and Denmark is because on the one hand, yes, looking at the U.S. really underscores how how Denmark and most EU countries have really done a tremendous amount like by having um, you know universal paid maternity leave and, and even paternity leave. But it doesn't necessarily um, bear out in the way that you expect in terms of like 
gender equality numbers, especially when it comes to the workplace. So, for example, 28% of managers in, in Denmark have been found to be, be female. Um, but this is actually way behind the U.S., where 43% of managers are women. Even though the U.S. ranks uh, 51st in the World Economic Forum's Gender Gap Index. So these things aren't necessarily correlated in the way that people expect them to be. And so one of the, I think, challenges that a place like Denmark faces is just a sort of blindness to the persistent problems, the problems that weren't magically fixed by adopting these very progressive policies several decades ago. So the this is an idea that's called sort of post-feminism. And I think Denmark mm -hmm. has a pretty post-feminist uh, mentality that can sort of blind mm -hmm. them to the fact that these inequalities have not been necessarily solved by progressive family leave policies. Um, whereas the U.S. is is very much not in a post-feminist mindset. You, you can't be when women are still not able to um, take paid leave from their jobs. Yeah, and there's that, that element of complacency that can sneak in when something good has been achieved but there's more that can be done and you can also lose that good if you're not aware of it i remember very much during my undergraduate there was a trend at the time of posts on the internet of women with like i don't need feminism because and it was totally i understand why people maybe thought that but the whole thing would have not have existed without feminism and it's just that blindness to history in a in a certain sense yeah, a lot of the equality has really been fought for. Like right now, we look up to Iceland as being number one always with the with the uh, in the global gender gap index. It's just remained on the top forever. Uh, but actually, they uh, they had a huge strike uh, in 1975 because uh, the UN had made uh, like a women's year, and they were also dissatisfied with their salaries and uh, with their working conditions, and also therefore. Um, 90% of the working women, they took to the streets and they just didn't work a minute mm -hmm. um, in uh, in one day in October. And the next year they passed uh, the law for a gender equality act uh, there in Iceland. And uh, and kind of like the whole mentality of the country shifted because uh, it's not a very big country in terms mm -hmm. of people living in it. But that, you know, they fought for it. And then uh, 1980, Iceland became the first uh, country in the world to elect uh, a woman uh, to uh, run their country. <laughs> Solidarity and strikes. Yeah. Always, a good, always a good tool. But I think that also, you know, talking a little bit about that history, that also shows, you know, we, we talk about being in equal societies or, you know, there's a general idea that our societies are equal. But Iceland's first female leader was in the 1980s. There's a lot of countries that have never had a female leader. There's clearly still division within within those fields. Denmark actually is one of the better ones and has a, a female prime minister now, but there's still huge imbalances within that. So we've talked a lot about parental leave. What about the other kind of areas that will that, that, that enforce that division of division of labor? Do you think that's the only aspect that causes women to be in different jobs or the cultural norms? I think cultural norms uh, within particular industries and, and types of jobs can also be um, really problematic, um, probably, again, disproportionately affecting women who have children. So, for example, if it's an industry, you know, like like advertising or, or something where uh, there's a culture of, of going out and, and networking and, and schmoozing and, um, you know, eating, eating and drinking with your clients, um, Oftentimes, those sorts of things are, are covered by expense accounts. Um, mm -hmm. Like you can put a put a dinner with uh, potential clients on your expense report, maybe even a hotel, uh, but you can't get childcare or babysitting covered. So that sort of thing is going to disadvantage a woman. Um, 
with with a child disproportionately. Uh, same thing uh, in in academia. There is a lot of uh, expectation to show up at um, you know lectures after hours or to uh, go to a conference and then go network with your colleagues after hours at the at the conference banquet. Um, and this can be for various reasons. Um, just more difficult for women to, to do than, than for men. I mean, the, the expectations of free time used in academia are, are kind of absurd. Um, yeah, yeah, and also just in general how women are kind of still perceived uh, now. It also, like when we have discussed a bit that women are lacking in the leadership positions and mm-hmm. as being CEOs, and for example, here in Denmark, the executives, like 14% of women that, that are up there, which is quite quite a small number so i think that's also about the general cultural view of women is still that they you know they should be nice and they mm-hmm. should be kind of soft and for example if i draw an example from my own uh, from my own industry music industry then women are very often also put there um to be kind of appealing in terms of sex mm-hmm. uh, so it's um so I think this all affects also the fact that there are, we find so few women in executive positions uh, and management positions because they are kind of expected to behave in a different way. So therefore, this leadership position is kind of not fitted for, for them. And of course, this is changing, but uh, it's kind of a slow change. Hmm. And, and the idea that like traditioning feminine traits aren't good for leadership, that you've got to be sort of masculine and strong and strong-willed as opposed to, you know listening to people or caring about the people um not that those are necessarily traits that are realistically gendered but those are the stereotypes yes Um, stereotypes i can add something to this about about my field as well uh so i think there can also be a problem when um when an industry has certain metrics for um, evaluating uh, merit um that aren't comprehensive of all the things that are actually required for for the job or the organization to function so for example in academia um, your ability to keep your job and get promoted is predicated on a very small and narrow number of things that you do. So publishing is the main one. Um, and then you're supposed to teach, but it's dramatically undervalued relative to research. So mm-hmm. publication is the main thing. But there are so many other things that faculty members actually have to do to keep this large organization running. You have to work on on committees. You have to go to um, faculty meetings. You have to participate in, in certain types of trainings. So at, at AU, they have mandatory training for uh, for teaching in the university that amounts to like over 100 hours that, you ha- that you're supposed to do before you get promoted. Mm-hmm. And I've done this training now, and I was just so mystified that out of like 70-some people, there was a handful of men. Mm-hmm. Like I, I could count them on one hand. And I asked around about it, and it turns out that when these sorts of mandatory trainings are, are, are advertised, the women take it as mandatory. They do it. Somehow the, the men just end up going up for tenure and they're like, oh, yeah, I didn't do that thing. They're not actually not going to be promoted for not doing the important mandatory training. It's just sort of overlooked. So women take certain responsibilities seriously because it, it's important to or because it is it is value adding to their job or it gives them important competencies. But in the end, they can be punished for that because their male colleagues may have just been looking looking ahead um, with their eye more on the prize of, I am going to use this time just to do publications. I'm going to spend less time on teaching because my course evaluations are less important ultimately than my uh, publication record. Um, It makes them, I think, worse colleagues in a lot of ways, (laughs) and it allows parts of the system to suffer, but it it can actually benefit them in terms of promotion and salary and other things. 
Yeah, so there's there's a lot of implicit biases and quite likely conscious biases as well when it comes to promotion. And it comes like I don't think we should overlook also that there are some people who are out and out sexist that will just won't want women to be around. Let's move on more to sort of personal experience. You guys come from different backgrounds and different different work contexts. Would you mind sharing a little about your own experiences of it or what you've noticed about about your ind- industries? And we've had a little bit about academia, which always makes my ribcage clench. What, what about you, Kirsty? What about in the music industry? Like, sort of, what trends are there? How does it how does it operate? So, in the music industry, uh, then the most prestigious uh, professions to have is, of course, being a professor at the music academy, then uh, uh, being uh, owning a record company or being a decision maker there or owning the venues and being in the management of venues that decide who gets to play in the more prestigious festivals and venues. Uh, And when we look at the facts, then uh, GAFA, a music magazine, uh, made a study last year, 2020, where they they found that 69% of the teachers here in Denmark at conservatory levels uh, are men. And also record company owners and decision makers there are 85% men. And also the owners for venues and <laughs> making decisions there are 82% men. So when we look at those numbers, then we also kind of um, get a very one-way view on what is expected of women in the industry. Um, because it is mostly men that make the decisions for what they want to see on the screen, what they want to see on the venues. And um, and it is great that it is finally been addressed um, because just uh, in the beginning of February, uh, the Danish radio um, released an article admitting that, yeah, actually also on the radio, we only play about 20% of music written by female composers. Uh, and they are primarily young female composers. Uh, so besides kind of the a bit of a sexist angle, there is also an ageism um, involved in that, um, especially when it comes to women. Uh, so there is still a lot of the, the male view that we see um, on the screen uh, and also in terms of what instruments uh, women play. When when we, you know, turn on the television, then what we mostly see women do uh, in, in music industry is be singers or be solo acts. It is very rare to see in the commercial image a female that plays an instrument, especially a rhythmic instrument. And uh, coming back to the conservatory level, it's uh, there is only 11% of women that teach a rhythmic instrument. So there is a huge bias with uh, with that as well. Um, so besides besides not having leadership positions like in decision making, um, women are also kind of kind of forced to be in uh, in that very specific space of a singer or a singer songwriter mostly, so that they also get to accompany themselves, which makes it very limited. And uh, another study they made is also like. They went to uh, music schools in 2019 and collected data on uh, on different instruments and like we're trying to understand why are girls like choosing certain instruments. For example, there is a overwhelming um, number of uh, girls that choose flute, for example, for an instrument and violin and uh, and uh, also piano. 
But um, when it comes to, for example, drums or guitar or bass, then it is it is a large vast majority of uh, of boys that um, that have taken that. And I, as a guitarist, uh, I have also very very acutely sensed it, being uh, the only female always in my guitar class, uh, starting from music school to uh, to a higher music school to a conservatory. I mean, he, even here in Denmark. Uh, the first three years I studied here, I was the only female in my in my department. And now, as a guitar teacher, I'm also the only guitar teacher, <laughs> actually. <laughs> so whenever I go to conferences, I am the only uh, woman looking around um, in the sea of men. So it is um, it is it is just very limited options. I feel that that women have in the industry. When we look a bit more closely, the classical music industry, then things are slightly better. Uh, there is still like a bias in terms of choosing the instrument that there are many more flute players and violinists and harp players as women and uh, the brass section is always made of men when we look at orchestras but um, I would have like an example to uh, to show that bias which is um, that in the 70s uh, in in America they implemented a system of um, blind screening for the musicians so when they auditioned then uh, it was a blind audition so that the jury wouldn't see who is playing if it's a if it's a male or a female and pre-70s uh, there was about six percent of women in the orchestras then by the 90s it was already up upwards 25 to 30 percent and uh, looking at the numbers now then in the largest european orchestras it's um around 36 percent in the uk 44 and in the northern america it, it is 40. so it is it is much better but still there are a lot of um, instrument biases still within the field so you don't see really uh, women play a brass instrument in orchestras so there are still like certain gendered options of what you get to play and what you get to what you mm. get to be but i think the biggest problem is that we don't have many women who are actually conservatory professors so we do not have role models for to um, pursue that so when a little girl looks at the television and sees only and you know loves music and and sees that there are only female singers out there then you know she's more likely to choose that path but uh, there is not enough diversity yeah it's, it's weird that it's something quite simple that somehow always gets overlooked that we, we like people who are like us right so like especially when you're young you're going to look at someone who's like you and go, well, that's a possibility. And if you don't see anyone who's like you doing something else, then you might not consider that. And vice versa. Also, all of those men who are predominant in those fields, maybe it's not conscious. I know I, I would like to give people the credit. Um, but there, there might be some fundamental thing. They just feel more comfortable. They feel more like, oh, this guy, he's a friend. Like, I get on with him. He's like me. So you'll help him a little, little further on, you know. Is there anything else other than that kind of bias and role model models that, that makes those things persist why there aren't any or aren't many female guitarists, for instance, when especially when I was a teenager, every guy plays guitar. I play guitar, not particularly good. Why? Why is it not a thing that seems an option for women? So there is still um, a lot of stereotyping that women, you know, should be soft and nice and lyrical, and men are more related to aggression mm. and uh, and putting themselves really in front. And for example, instruments like guitar or bass and drums, you know, they are considered more aggressive, you know, kind of rock instruments and, and therefore more male. Mm -hmm. But then, for example, flute and singing, that's very feminine. Uh, flute, uh, flute is high register, it is a very lyrical instrument, and then therefore it fits the stereotype of feminine. 
So I think a lot of the ways the instruments are still viewed is that either they are feminine or masculine. And unfortunately, the instruments like yeah, drums, el- electric mm. bass and guitar, they are very masculine. So therefore, less uh, less girls would choose that as an instrument. I personally didn't care because I just <laughs> love guitar. But, mm. uh, but uh, unfortunately, looking around, I am more of an exception. We're so primitive in some ways. We're just like, well, I, have a, I associate these things, so uh, I'm, that's just how I'm going to run my life. It's so strange. Um, and I remember we talked about this b- before, that like, if it's an all-female band, that's a thing. No one mentions like if it's an all-male band. That's just the <laughs> yeah. norm. So thank you, Kissy, uh, for talking about the, the music industry. Rebecca, um, we've mentioned the sort of academic industry, um, and I have cringed in horror at it. Um, is there anything more you'd, you'd like to say about that? Yeah, I think one other like really well-documented uh, source of, of inequality in uh, academia has to do with um, teaching responsibility and the fact that much like, like women are sort of delegated to certain sorts of tasks and often lower prestige positions in many industries, this is also true in, in academia. And there's evidence that women are disproportionately saddled with teaching, which is less valued for promotion and tenure. And then there's also this this pernicious uh, phenomenon of of bias in in course evaluations, so evaluations from students, which it really depends on the university how much that matters, but um, they actually tend to have have quite a big effect um, on faculty, and um, it's really well documented that that women are disproportionately um, disfavored by student course evaluations. So there have been some more qualitative studies, some sort of survey-based studies, collecting data, aggregated data from real courses. But there have also been some controlled experiments where, for example, there'll be an online course. So it's strictly offered online without any sort of face-to-face exposure to the teacher. And then uh, half of the students will be told that the course was um, taught by a man. Half will be told that it was taught by a woman. And students will not only report that the quality of the course was worse if they are in the uh, the women group, but they'll also say things uh, like in the male group, they'll report that their papers were graded faster and more competently, even though it's done by a computer. And there's <laughs> there's no gendered uh, teacher behind yeah. the, um, the course itself. So we know that this is a, a real phenomenon. Um, I did a little study of, of some course of a corpus of course evaluations at Aarhus University just to look at the kinds of, of words that male and female students tended to, to use for their professors, uh, male and female. And it was a very skewed data set because, as is typical, male professors greatly outnumbered female professors, but there was definitely a tendency for the evaluations of of women to focus more on um, their attitude, uh, how nurturing they were, um, and for for male professors, the focus was more about uh, their intellectual rigor or the fact that they were considered brilliant or geniuses. These are just, these don't seem like gendered words, but we actually have a lot of uh, data that suggests that they're used in a gendered way, and women suffer for that. Mm. So this is an expectation that students have for female professors that they don't for male professors. If they want an extension, if they're having personal problems, if they if they need help, they're not, they're not going to their male professors at the same rate that they go to their female professors. And it's not really talked about a lot as a, as a problem, as a systemic problem. So... Mm. Not a single student ever came to me for pastoral care. Uh, and I think I'm a fairly friendly person. 
but also there's so much stuff that we talked about all those cultural biases you're talking about genius and that kind of stuff like network is so key to getting promotions in that field that all of the stuff we've been talking about it just it it, again again and again it applies um but okay so we talked a little little bit about a little bit we've talked a lot about this huge problem and how it manifests and 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 what it is but let's let's sort of talk about what the consequences are what effect does it have and why is this important there is clearly a moral argument that it's wrong if we believe in gender equality and that kind of stuff but some people aren't necessarily convinced by that argument obviously the first effect is women have less money um why does this matter well um because it perpetrates their dependence Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because then women have to rely uh, much more on men in terms of economy also it continues the patriarchal pattern (laughs) and uh, we just kind of stay stagnant in it and in general it's just uh, you know weighing down women and uh, and um, not enabling them to use their full potential Mm -hmm. because even Right now, women make up uh, 37% of the of the GDP or uh, the global gross domestic product, but um, but we already saw that number uh, like get to that you know in a rapid state uh, when uh, women were allowed to work in more varied professions. Mm-hmm. So I think that increasing it even further, then women also economically, I mean, would contribute so much more globally. Mm-hmm. So there is also that change that would definitely happen. Um, Rebecca? Yeah, um, Kirsty made great points. I completely agree. Also, pay inequality isn't the only inequality facing women. So we also know that there's still very high rates of gender-based violence all over the world, and women are more likely to need to um, leave unsafe situations or partnerships or domestic situations due to the potential of or, or reality of violence. And I think one of I think it's been shown time and again that one of the biggest impediments to to women seeking safety is um, you know financial dependency. And there are many other factors, but that certainly is a big one. If as a society we want to ensure that not only um, equality for women in the workplace, but also greater safety for women, um, those actually I think go hand in hand. And I mean, this is kind of why this podcast exists, why our group exists, because. Economic inequality is the way so many other inequalities manifest, like you say, and it maintains those inequalities. I'd also like to go back to the example you gave of some of the first programmers. We can just have a much richer cultural and intellectual life as well. Like some of the people who were literally calculating the calculations to send people to the moon were black women who had to use segregated toilets, right? Mm. Segregated everything. That's a huge waste of, of potential there. These people are so constrained and they literally got people to the moon there wasn't prestige in it like we've talked about so it was kind of overlooked but now we're seeing these stories again so it'll help people who are suffering help kind of close this gap and also it'll it'll make society better on on so many levels i'm glad that you um you brought that up also because one thing that we haven't really talked about yet is the fact that inequalities tend to compound one another (laughs) and so where there is gender-based inequality uh, what we always see is that um, you know racial and ethnic minorities are also disproportionately affected by these inequalities. So Absolutely. I couldn't actually f- uh, find data on this um, for Denmark, unfortunately, but the wage gap in the U.S. Uh, based on gender. So white women make about 80 cents to the dollar of white men. But for black women, it's 62 cents to the dollar. Hispanic or Latino women, it's 54 cents to the dollar. 
American Indian or Alaskan Native women, it's 57 cents to the dollar, so almost you know, half their income. Um, so this is really important to point out that we can't talk about gender in isolation. We also need to take into account gender minorities and non-binary people and, mm. and trans people because we always see that they are also disproportionately um, affected by economic and workplace inequality. Absolutely. Well, you said it so perfectly. I don't really have anything to add. Why can't I find this data for Denmark? Like, I would, lo- I would love to know what like Somali women make in Denmark relative to ethnic yeah, Danish women. Well, transparency right? on all yeah, levels. I mean, yes. they keep it under lock and key for a reason, mm-hmm. because also the companies I mentioned earlier about you know the pay transparency. I mean, why don't they just spend that? tiny amount of money what they actually make in a huge company right to make it transparent but no because otherwise they would be facing a lot of legal suits where they have to spend a lot more Mm. i mean i think it's for a reason Mm -hmm. relying on the kindness of of a large company is not going to get us anywhere okay so there's consequences there's problems what about solution i know it's a it's a very complex issue clearly and it has a lot of different elements to it so it's not like there's going to be one panacea that we can go oh we just do this and it'll all be fixed because really it's multiple different problems but are there any good policies you've heard of or are there any potential ones with problems i know kirsi you mentioned blind auditions Mm. for instance in your industry which i suppose helped steer away people from unconscious or conscious biases is there anything similar or any solutions that that have been tried that you, you you know of so I can't think of sort of one-size-fits-all solutions that would work across, you know, all, all industries or contexts, because I think the blind auditions one is a really great example for a case where you can really control the factors that go into bias by uh, blinding. Yeah, but I think that's also only only by gender, because mm-hmm. it hasn't helped, um, the, uh, for example, the blacks and the Latinos to get into the orchestras uh, because of the sociocultural and socioeconomic factors, since they can't simply afford to go to those fancy mm. colleges. But right. uh, it is still like between white men and white women yes <laughs> exactly so we can you know we can instate these these kind of more fair uh, policies for say evaluation like we have double blind review it's very common in academia which i think is meant to do something similar but it it doesn't really solve um the kind of pipeline problems so the very fact that we have more in denmark uh, we have more phd student women than we have men but we have only 17% of full professors at, at Aarhus University are women. So, you know, it doesn't really matter if, if you solve one part of the discrimination puzzle, if there are so many other factors at play that sort of alienate and push out women at different stages of their career. I would say that in in general, it feels like the themes that have come out of this conversation for maybe working towards solving these problems would be data. So data that takes into account uh, gender differences and um, biases, uh, more research at the more local level, awareness, transparency, and accountability. So what could we achieve if it became um, mandated or at least more normalized to have transparency about salary um, and promotion that also takes into account gender so that, that we know exactly uh, how big these gaps are. Um, having more accountability for um, people who make policy and hiring and gatekeeping decisions. So uh, actually, if you want to make change, you're going to have to have people be accountable 
for making sure those changes happen. Um, and I think this is often cited as a problem in universities that uh, there's never a shortage of uh, diversity and equity and inclusion initiatives. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've <laughs> we've got we've got all sorts of workshops and all sorts of lectures and all sorts of brochures, but it doesn't actually seem to affect a, a lot of change. So I think accountability is a, is a huge piece of this. Yeah, I also believe that this change already, since it is very cultural as well, then uh, we can start only addressing it little uh, like from our immediate surroundings, like like talking about the issue and acknowledging that there is an issue. I think that would be in many places the first step, because as we said also here in Denmark, there is a lot of this um, post-feminism that you that you, mm -hmm. that you said, like a post-feminism mentality. We have already done that. I mean, there was the big women's movement in the 70s. Uh, we are uh, we're kind of equal now. There is no problem to be addressed. So I think the first step is to acknowledge there is a problem. It still persists and there is still a large cultural bias uh, which uh, is not addressed. So uh, so really little changes what we could do is just yeah have more of such podcasts, um, have more of those <laughs> articles published on, uh, on newspapers and just, just make people aware uh, as much as possible through events and through just talking and uh, other mediums that we can use. You'll never get an argument for me against public education. I clearly uh, love it. But so what about like double blind applications at each stage of application? Would that be helpful at all? Or do you think that just kind of sidesteps the issue or are there flaws in that? It's not that it sidesteps the issue. It just um, doesn't take into account still systemic disadvantages that women may face getting to the getting to the point of, of sort of a blind evaluation. Um also, I guess the context matters here again. I mean, I, it sounds to me like uh, the way you get into an orchestra, say, is by like performing a, a piece of music, and that's the main part of, of the sort of evaluation in that case. And so just sort of blinding uh, the evaluators to the gender of the performer uh, might actually do a lot to preclude bias. But um, I think for, for a lot of fields, um, there's a whole constellation of things that are taken into account when evaluating you know, what someone's worth paying or whether they're mm -hmm. ready for a promotion. And it may be a combination of, you know, say, hours worked or um, recommendations from uh, senior colleagues or all these things that we know. We have a lot of data that shows that women are disproportionately disadvantaged in these ways. So I don't think that just like blinding to the gender of, of, of an applicant, say, is going to necessarily fix things. I do want to echo what Kiersey just said about uh, sort of at the individual level what we can do, and education is, is really important. A acknowledging that there's a problem is definitely the first step. It's, it's worth noting that everybody is, is guilty of unconscious bias. Uh, I am as well. I have to check and make sure that I don't accidentally under-credential my female colleagues. For some reason, I don't have any trouble remembering that a, that a guy is a professor and associate professor, but I have caught myself forgetting that a female colleague is not a postdoc. This happens all the time. It's it's really common. There's a perpetual feed on Twitter of, of women who are taking pictures of posters of them announcing a, a talk, and it's Dr. Man, Dr. Man, woman's name. So no credential there, even though she's a PhD holder. It's really common. And, and um, also, you know, there's a citation gap in academia. Mm. Men, men cite themselves 70% more than women. And um, <laughs> self-citation counts as citation. 
And actually, your citation index can be a really important factor um, in, in promotion and hiring. So, you know, men get a 70% boost there um, just by citing themselves. We also know that men cite each other more. So I think we really need to take these things into account when you're evaluating, say, a female academic and she looks very qualified, but you wonder if she should have more citations based on her number of years in the academy. Stop and think whether that's actually representative of her merit or whether there may have been many other factors in place that um, unfairly disadvantaged her in that respect. I mean, I've read an article recently about the new, in The New Scientist about people having literal citation cabals where they all agreed to cite each other's papers. I think that whole system really needs an overhaul. It's so <laughs> as if the, you know, the number of references is a good indicator of anything. Now I'm going to call all my female academic friends and be like, do you want to join a cabal <laughs> with me? Yeah. I'm going to cite you. I have just maybe a one, uh, one more thing to add, like thinking of education. Mm. But I mean, all of these gender roles that we have to navigate, I mean, they start very early on. And we see that already, like up to the age of uh, four or five, boys and girls, they play as kind of equals and they don't really kind of understand what comes along with this gender that the society has created. But then past that age, you know, you see a uh, specific segregation. And I think that also school systems, they might not uh, be very helpful in kind of addressing that problem. And uh, there was a famous case of this um, study uh, called uh, Draw the Scientist that they, <laughs> that they did in, uh, in classrooms. Um, and I think the first one uh, took place in the 70s. And then all the boys drew 100% a male scientist. And then uh, from the girls, 30% of them drew a female scientist. But 70%, so the majority, was still drawn as male. So, so even to start from the very bottom to have more of uh, yeah, female representation, for example, mm -hmm. and also racially different <laughs> representation, it, it would go a long way in the eyes of a child. Mm. Basically, what we're saying, it's way too complex an issue to have a simple solution. Like, it needs a, a complex solution. Campaigns, representation, like you say. Even so, something so simple, I think I've heard people say uh, the right fiction. Like, think when you're writing a character, does it really need to be a man? Just think, can you change it? It doesn't even necessarily you have to change anything about the story. Just change who's in it, and it'll broaden up the possibilities that people see you. Yeah, I know it's not as tidy as, as having, like, concrete suggestions for... <laughs> solutions but one of the one of the problems and one of the dangers is mm. that there's no shortage of, of say organizations or think tanks or like well-meaning like well-meaning organizations that think they have some sort of silver bullet uh, solution and mm. it's never really the case I mean this is systemic it's woven into uh, all threads of our lives I and mean, women are biased against women much as as men are biased mm -hmm. against women there's a lot of unlearning to do but there's still you know, policy interventions that we could do that I think would, would certainly mediate some of the problems. But uh, I think it's a, a long road towards social and cultural change. We can't completely solve it with, with some, you know, clever interventions. I mean, we, we live in a very technocratic context. Yeah. And there's always, yeah, like you say, people looking for that silver bullet. But ultimately, when it comes down to changing a culture, yeah, you could have education programs, you can mandate something in schools, but ultimately you have to change people's minds yeah and also the family model i yeah. mean uh, that's the first uh, idea we get about genders our mother and father i guess i would also just add that in terms of the you know education and awareness while it is really important to make people aware of the bad news that mm -hmm. is the degree of inequality that's persistent even in 
relatively gender equal places like Denmark, it's also really important to make sure that people understand that this is not just about over promoting and over entitling women over men. It's not just about giving women promotions and higher income and, and bonuses at the expense of men. Um, it, it is about um, actually finally achieving equality. And there are reasons why uh, we want to actually take steps and make interventions that will make some of these numbers even out more. So for example, with, with, with leadership, um, there's been a lot of study recently of what are important leadership attributes. So coming up with an actual um, quantifiable scale um, and one that's used widely is one that has like 19 different attributes that make uh, that make for a good leader. And um, out of a, a survey was conducted from 2016 to 2019, surveying 60,000 leaders, only 22,000 of whom were women because of that gap. But what was found was that women consistently outscored men in 17 of the 19 categories uh, that make for a good leader. So this isn't the result of, of women not being being qualified or just inherently lacking the characteristics that we want uh, for people in management or leadership positions. Um, it's, it's about something else. And also um, the consulting company McKinsey found that companies that are in the top quartile for gender or racial or ethnic diversity are more likely to have financial returns above uh, national industry mm-hmm. medians. So it's good for business as well. I, what I find a lot in my conversations, especially with people here in Denmark, is that there's a sense that, oh, if you have a quota system or, oh, if you take gender into account in hiring decisions to make sure to uh, hire more more women to even out the workforce, well, you're disadvantaging uh, men and you're disadvantaging potentially the company or the organization. And it's just not the case. And people need to understand that. Yeah, we're addressing an imbalance, really, yeah. rather than creating one. And I mean, just in terms of talking about leadership, just look at the coronavirus. A lot of the countries that have done by far the best have been ones with female leaders. That's not to say it's because of that, but it certainly disproves the opposite. I think that's about all we have time for today. So I would like to thank you both, uh, Kiersey and Rebecca, for sharing your knowledge and your experience and working together um, with the Economic Inequality Group on this episode. There's a lot going on in Mellenfolkli San Vega Aarhus, and I believe you guys have something coming up just in the next week, um, for March the 8th. Exactly, March the 8th. Uh, we are going to be celebrating the Women's Fight Day, or just generally known as the Women's Day, the 8th of March. And uh, when normally here in Aarhus, there is always a huge demonstration, uh, which actually is always even bigger than in Copenhagen funnily enough. This year, of course, we cannot do that in this format, but uh, in collaboration with the Gender Museum Aarhus, which used to be the Women's Museum, we uh, have planned a little treasure hunt. And there are going to be different posts in the central Aarhus, which uh, represent different problems uh, in our society. They are called Stand Against Racism, Stand for LGBTQ plus rights, stand for bodily autonomy, stand against economic inequality and stand for a green future. And the concept would be that you can go around from post to post and in each post you can find different organizations working against these discriminations. And uh, you can learn more about them and their work and also about the problem itself. So check it out on Facebook. We are going to add the link as well to it, but it's called uh, the Equality March 2021. So even though we won't be able to meet up for our usual raucous in-person march, we will have a socially distanced opportunity to engage with, uh, with Women's Day and also online events. 
Yes, there are online events and conducted interviews online as well. And uh, all of the links are available also on Facebook. And the theme this year is? Ligestilling in krisetid. So it is equality in the time of crisis. And uh, yeah, one of the main subtexts is the gender pay gap. Fantastic. Um, So come along to that if you're in Aarhus and if you can. Uh, If you can't, or even if you can, you can come down to the cafe for takeaway at the minute. But hopefully once restrictions have eased up, you can come down and sit in the cafe. Until then... Mellemfolkly Samvige is a Danish NGO that works for a more just and sustainable world, collaborating with global partners worldwide as part of the ActionAid Alliance. In Aarhus, we have over 100 volunteers working together to run a not-for-profit cafe and to campaign and educate in areas ranging from feminism and climate justice to anti-discrimination and economic inequality to queer issues and refugee rights. If you want to get involved uh, with our events or activities and campaigns, even running the cafe, come down, take part. Check out Instagram and Facebook to find out more or look up Café Mellenfolk and Mellenfolk Le Sandvig Aarhus or follow the links we'll be putting in the episode notes. I believe we'll also be putting uh, references from you guys' sources in the episode notes today. And also, if anyone wants more content, check out YouTube, Podbean or any of the other podcast providers um, for more episodes and more cool stuff. Thank you, everyone, for listening and goodbye. Thank you so much for inviting us. Thanks so much. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.